a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Right, welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you once again. And today, we're going to be working on some current events in law enforcement. And for that, we brought in our federal partner again, uh, Brian Sove, president of the National Police Federation. Uh, so welcome, Brian. Oh, good afternoon, Nathan. Uh, this is your third appearance on here. So you're in season one, uh, episode four and episode 29, if people want to go back and listen to some of the updates you were giving along the way. Um, I'm glad we could kind of keep the relationship going and get you in here. And, um, you know, people love hearing the current events and, and what's happening with you, especially being the largest police service in Canada. Uh, so today we're going to cover a few different things and we'll see where we get to with them. But um, just for the listeners, so they kind of have an idea of where we're going with this. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about was the Mass Casualty Commission which was the response to the 2020 Nova Scotia mass murder of 22 people. The uh, uh, Casualty Commission looked to provide clarity uh, around the causes and context that led to some of the murders. And they made a bunch of recommendations or will be making recommendations uh, to help keep people safe in the future. Uh, with this commission, the NPF was a formal participant and uh, has 28 of their own recommendations that they're going to be putting out. So we're going to cover off some of that. We're also going to talk a bit about recruiting. There's been some changes to the RCMP's experience officer uh, applicant process. And um, we'll also get onto some bail reform and just where things are with the uh, so-called strengthening of the bail system. So uh, anywhere you'd like to start in particular? Um. Obviously, bail reform is a hot topic. Maybe we save that for the end so yeah. that people stick around. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But the Mass Casualty Commission is a good one to to start with. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, a the uh, the commissioners it's themselves, I believe, are supposed to come up with their uh, their uh, final report March thirty first. Mm -hmm. So we're still waiting a little bit, um, and we just thought we'd be proactive and submit um, uh, some of the recommendations that we think. Um, they should be considering as far as we go. So when you, um, you know what, there's been a few inquiries and commissions lately on all kinds of things, <laughs> but uh, when they start doing these processes, who's analyzing all the data uh, on your behalf? And then, you know, how do you come up with your recommendations? And the reason I'm asking is because I went on their website and it is literally hundreds of documents with tens of yeah. thousands of pages and they have some pretty cool stuff. Like they're, they're talking about the whole history of firearms in Canada and someone did a massive study. Like I, I didn't know half of these things were a part of it. I don't even get to watch, you know, 99% of what's been on TV even, but just the sheer volume. So how do you guys at the NPF kind of take all that in and formulate it into recommendations? Uh, good question. The best answer I can give you is some really, really dedicated people on our staff. You know, we've got uh, an excellent media relations department, very committed government relations and policy department. Um, and then obviously lead counsel for us um, that we engaged in late, mid-2021 in order to prepare for it, who were actually on the ground uh, and, you know, like any trial, if you will, they and their staff went through a lot of the disclosure and um, it, it, it voluminous, like mm. thousands and thousands of documents. And some didn't even come to light until after the proceedings had concluded. There was so much of it. So it's, uh, it's just too much stuff. So really, it was just a... a, a a human resource crunch, um, and and being able to uh, have that capacity was what we were able to do. So, does the NPF? Uh, were you sitting in? Like, did you have a representative at every single one of these uh, individual events or trials or whatever was taking place? 
yes and no. Uh, you know, we, we there were there were some obviously um, uh, Nasha and her team as our counsel on the ground uh, with our intervener status uh, or participant status. They were invited, and we were invited to participate in every session when they convened. Um, we didn't do so uh, because obviously, you know, uh, Nasha and Kelly would make the decision. Well, today is a roundtable on. Um, uh, reforming the justice system for social supports. Mm-hmm. Um, does that really impact us and the RCMP service delivery model? Not necessarily. So they would choose to, you know, work in their office or something else and not be there in person. And and similarly, from our staff perspective, you know, we we made a point of being there whenever any one of our members was actually going to be in a roundtable or on a witness panel or uh, giving evidence. Uh, but we didn't actually have people there for every day of the proceedings. Yeah. So I mainly asked that just to kind of get like a, a, a picture of how collaborative of a process it is. Because I always wonder, you know, they, they say, hey, these people are going to be a part of it. Do they really listen? Do they really allow you in the room? So that's the main reason I'm kind of asking. So I mean, it sounds like the MPF is has a big part in it. And I get what you're saying there. You know, does this one event really involve us we don't need to be a part of it so um but overall it seems like a pretty good process uh, um, and recommendations are going to come out you know i think i think the one thing that we didn't expect um was how uh you know witness testimony regardless of who the witness was uh became a bit of theater mm. uh and 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 more you know uh it's it's a, um, it's very public versus, you know, a lot of wrongful death inquiries or coroner's inquiry requests, which are, you know, in a room, not necessarily webcast. And you can still go on their webpage today and you can look at all of the webcasts. Um, so you can be on vacation in Mexico or in Germany and following along and, 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 you know, binge watching, mm-hmm. um, uh, the proceedings. So I don't don't think we expected or anticipated how how public um, all of this was going to be, um, and you know that's obviously a challenge for the members and the families um, who are impacted from that because it's just a reopening and a reliving and a retelling again and again and again. Yeah, almost with every single person that gets up there. Yes, you know they're telling overlapping stories. Um, I couldn't imagine just the, the, yeah, how I guess re-traumatizing that could be. So, especially for the, uh, the members and the family that were there, um, maybe if we move into like some of the recommendations that the NPF, so you've been proactive in putting these recommendations out. Um, is this document available to everybody yet or no? Um, I believe it's available on our, our, our Nova Scotia.ca webpage. Okay. Uh, and we did proactively do some media on this, uh, sending it out to different media because, uh, you know, again, with, with this mass casualty commission, uh, talking about the theater and talking about the public nature of it. Um, and I, I don't blame, um, anyone or any of the participants, right? Because there is, you know, in a typical, um, uh, criminal proceeding, there is a perp walk, there's a trial, someone might go to jail, and then you end up with an inquiry afterwards. In this situation, right, mass murder, worst one in Canadian history, there is no trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no bad guy that's actually going to do a perp walk or stand up in court or do whatever. So it became a little bit about... Um, and again, I'm not blaming. I think it's, it's part of the closure and, and the grief process. It became a little bit about finger pointing and, um, and, and finding someone to wear the shame and the blame. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have tried to um, be a little bit about uh, bringing it back to ground. Why are we here? What are we looking for? It's all about the future, not necessarily the past, uh, knowing that the past is going to impact the future. So hence why you see in our recommendations, um, most of it is based on some of the weaknesses we've seen in the response and some of the weaknesses we see in policing in Nova Scotia mm-hmm. uh, and how the government, both federal and provincial, 
and different municipal ones can actually have a positive impact to uh, improve public safety. Yeah, you're right. I think you got a very good point right at the end there, especially about the feds, the provincial and municipal sides of things working together, especially nowadays. Everything is so divisive and everybody's just quick to say whatever the other person is doing, whether it's right or wrong, is wrong. <laughs> and they just, everyone's jumping down everyone's throats. When you have an event like this, uh, you need true collaboration. You need people to listen and, and you know, truly uh, give a crap about what's going on here. So, um, and one of the things you were talking about was uh, like resourcing and funding. So that's all in the recommendations. As I said, there was, there was about 28 recommendations. Um, I kind of generalized them into about five different things I was seeing. So maybe we could talk about funding by the provinces, because this is one thing that wasn't super clear to me. Uh, at least I've never been aware of this, but the cost recovery uh, portion of it and what per officer cost is. So I guess... Can you explain how the provinces are funding members and where maybe that kind of affects your staffing? Uh, yeah, so I mean, the, the, the recommendation that we discontinue the idea of per officer funding formula as a basis for cost recovery is traditionally in Nova Scotia, obviously there's a provincial police service agreement where the RCMP is the uh, provincial police for the province of Nova Scotia. Um, all communities under 5,000 um, residents actually have the RCMP provided to them, uh, uh, paid for by the province. If you're between five and 15,000, then there's a cost sharing formula, mm -hmm. usually 70% paid by the province and 30% um, um, uh, or sorry, yeah, 70% paid by the uh, uh, municipality, 30% paid by the province uh, or the federal government. And then as soon as you get over that 15,000 threshold, then you end up in a 90-10 cost-sharing formula, 90% paid by the municipality and 10% paid by the province or the, or the feds. Um, but what has happened over the last two to three decades, and you see in a lot of the testimony from the commanding officers, is that municipalities might be authorized for five police officers. Mm -hmm. But they choose to keep one position vacant because they want to save a little bit of money. So they tell the province, we only want four and we're only paying for four, mm -hmm. even though they're authorized for five. And, you know, Bible Hill Detachment, which did the primary response to Porter Peak, uh, they were actually authorized for six and they only funded four. So they've always only had four available and everybody got used to having four and you work your shifts around it, you call in overtime and such. So, you know, we're just sitting back and saying, let's eliminate that practice. And, and the province should be able to say, we have 970-ish uh, police officers for the PPSA. We are deploying them as we see fit. If you have five positions, you're getting five bodies. Mm -hmm. So basically holding people to the standard, right? A minimum exactly. standard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's like you can't really run your car and it's got all the check engine lights on. You're like, you know, I'm just going to keep running and see what happens. Yep. And then it, you know, yep. it dies on you halfway out in the middle of nowhere. Well, what'd you expect? At some point it's coming back to bite you. So, um, yeah, it's, it's always a, a budget thing, but at what point is, uh, you know, the dollars and cents, kind of overtake the safety of the community. So I guess the communities or the, the decision makers kind of got aware of that a bit. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think, you know, you've probably seen it in Edmonton. I know we've seen it in all sorts of jurisdictions across Canada where the mandate of the police officer has grown over the last 15 to 20 years because other social services have shrunk. Mm -hmm. So we're asking our cops to do more but we're actually not even staffing them to the level that they uh, they should in order to provide their baseline level of service. So, so it's 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 a bigger discussion, but um, hence why we hope that these commissioners actually take notice on mm -hmm. on on this particular issue and uh, go forward. 
Well, maybe I'll, I'll kind of just switch gears a little bit on this since you have this last comment here. But once these recommendations are made, who pushes them for it? Who brings them to life? And um, in the meantime, I guess, who keeps it going? Like saying, hey, this isn't done yet. What's going on? Well, I think that's going to fall to us mm-hmm. um, for a lot of things. Uh, you know, internally within the RCMP, uh, we'll be advocating for recommendations that that, that that make sense that have come out of this commission. Um, you know, we also have fairly strong federal um, lobby arm. You know, we deal a lot with, you know, the Minister of Public Safety, uh, Treasurer Board of Canada, et cetera. So we'll be advocating there. Uh, and, but I also hope that the RCMP itself and the province of Nova Scotia themselves will proactively uh, implement a lot of the recommendations that come forward. And they have done so already, not knowing what's going to come out, right? So, for example, um, there's been some discussion about policing standards in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. In April 2020, the Police Service Act didn't have clear-cut standards for a police service, right? Since that mass casualty event and as the Mass Casualty Commission was ongoing, the province engaged with different police services to talk about what adequate standards look like. Uh, and those are already in the works um, and they were ready to be published, but I think they've held off until April now. Yeah. So there has been some work that's already been ongoing, which is good. And you know what, from my own experience and seeing when major events happen, even in the municipal service side of things or the RCMP side, sometimes you start to get some of that compliance with the recommendations. And then just as time goes on, it seems like they kind of wane and they just die off. So I don't ever your job. I mean, like some of these recommendations, I mean, they, they need a lot of people to approve things uh, to get on board. But I mean, they could take a year or longer. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, you got to really stay on top of those. Um, one of the things that I found very surprising was uh, when it came to the resourcing was the air support that they had. So it was at the time of the uh, shootings, there was one helicopter and one airplane available, but for different reasons, neither one was able to get up in the air. Uh, But they only, for the entire Maritimes, there's only the one place that they come out of. That's, was I reading that correct? Moncton, yeah, yeah, yeah. The entire RCMP air services for Atlantic Canada works out of Moncton. And and obviously, uh, you know, from uh, yourself and myself, all my services in the lower mainland of BC, it's kind of big city policing. Mm-hmm. I think I think we grow up seeing, well, hey, there's a helicopter available, there's a plane available, we want to do surveillance, we can go up in plane or we want to chase a stolen car, we can, we can call a helicopter. That's not the case in Atlantic Canada. And, and again, it goes back to um, the response to the 18th and 19th of April. You know, the RCMP, with respect to air support, I mean, they did everything right. They were just hamstrung with the resources that they had available to them. Um, and, you know, to the point where, where they were calling Joint Rescue um, uh, Command, trying to get one of the CAS planes up in the air. And they basically said, yeah, we don't fly at night. Sorry, thanks. Um, to moving to Montreal services, saying how quickly can you get a helicopter here? Um, so back to how much resources do you have? Do, have you planned for the worst and hope for the best, mm-hmm. uh, or have we gotten into this cycle of complacency, living in a safe community, and we're going to? scale back budgets on air services because it didn't used to just be one helicopter and one plane. There were actually more resources available about 10 years ago. It's just they got scaled back through through budget cuts. Mm-hmm. Well, that goes back to the uh, thing we were just talking about where even the, the number of officers that they're authorized to have, but what they choose to fund. It's like, oh, nothing happened this week. Cut a person. Nothing happened the next week. Just cut another person. Save money where you can. But then when the big one happens, like you're saying, you got to prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Um, Yeah, you definitely see that there. Um, One of the things too was 
uh, on the tactical unit that was available. So is the the Maritimes, do they have a full-time tactical team or is it just a, a part-time? So at the time, it was a hybrid in Nova Scotia. And again, back to uh, there have been improvements made already. You know, the emergency response team um, has already moved forward to an almost full-time team. Uh, you know, they had, uh, I'm trying to remember the, the, the exact numbers, it was either seven or eight full-time positions mm-hmm. and then another seven or eight part-time to make up a full team of, 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 of 16. Uh, since, you know, April 18th, 19th, 2020, into the Mass Casualty Commission, you know, the province has approved funding for a full-time team, and they're just in the process of actually staffing up all of those 18 positions. Um, so, yeah, it was a hybrid, and obviously you don't get the best 24-7, 365 coverage for the entire province, mm-hmm. mind you. We're yeah. not just talking about one town um, um, with members all over the place because with the hybrid and when I started my service, we had part-time emergency response teams from the lower mainland. And as much as I love the fact of having a part-time earth member in a patrol car responding to calls with me and you can learn from their experience and, and their tactical awareness, I think communities and we've gotten to a place now where, where we definitely need those dedicated deployments. Um, and the abilities for them to uh, to to come at will. Mm-hmm. So it's getting better. Um, so speaking of on that too, I guess uh, maybe we'll move into the provincial policing standards. And I guess this will touch a bit on even the uh, the idea of like a federal standard. So when it comes to like uses of force, uh, can you kind of give me like what's your opinion on whether you have a provincial standard? or a federal standard, maybe where one is overstepping its bounds. Um, you know, do you, what's kind of your opinion on these different places and, and even having a college to that effect? Yeah, I don't know. So, you know, federally speaking, obviously the RCMP has some fairly good standards. Uh, um, um, you know, comparatively speaking, some uh, municipal or provincial police agencies might be better than us or, or not as good as us in different areas, like, you know, use of force train, framework, uh, mandatory recertification training, uh, rollout of, of, of uh, this use of force equipment or this piece of equipment or such. Um, but I think federally, we're pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when the province in Nova Scotia is really talking about standards, I think what they're talking about is Um, the way I understand it is if you're going to have a police service, whether it's one cop or 500, doesn't matter. Here's what you must meet in order to uh, comply under the police act. And that means, you know, you have to have an emergency response team and that emergency response team must be comprised of this. You must be able to have a critical incident package and that critical incident package has these things. Uh, you must have access to some form of air support and that air support must have this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then if you can't, like, you know, the police agency of one constable or one chief constable, for example, then you have to have some form of agreement with your neighbor to provide those services and show how you're going to pay your neighbor for the rental or use of those services. So that's really where the, where the province of Nova Scotia is going. Um, you know, police college across Canada, interesting idea. Um, I don't know if the provinces would actually buy in, right? Mm-hmm. Because, um, uh, Obviously, police service acts are different all the way across Canada. There's all, you know, the Ontario Police Service Act and the Training Academy in Ontario, uh, Quebec with Nicolet and uh, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, and all those places each are unique. Um, so, policing is provincially regulated mm-hmm. as far as the service delivery. I think we can do better about um, how all those chiefs come to an agreement about the minimum standard they're willing to teach to uh, in those um, colleges and those training. 
but you know, would it be one college? Uh, I think it was Finland that went to uh, uh, a degree program. You need to have a, a diploma or a degree or two years before you can actually uh, apply to a police service. And then there's a two to three year probationary period before you actually get in and hmm. different, smaller country, yeah. uh, different world. So yeah. uh, not sure. I think that is, it's an interesting idea. I think there's a lot of good that could come out of it. There's also a lot of questions I would have around it. Um, definitely for bigger brains than me to figure out. But uh, I thought, you know, just having national standards, I don't know if that's the greatest idea when it comes to policing and just saying a one-size-fits-all approach. Mm-hmm. We already see this with a lot of provinces pushing back on certain things trying to, I don't know, work on their sovereignty from the federal side of things to an extent. So, but I, I thought, well, what if you made, uh, what if you incentivized having a, a police college by, you know, you come out with a trade or something else, you're, um, and, and also if you're considered a professional by whatever standards, you've obtained this, you know, degree there. That's so I was kind of a unique idea Maybe that's something that they look at. I know that's been written about a few times, but um, I guess we'll see see what that's like. But I, I remember going through depot and when uh, people would come out and get posted to BC, they still had to go do a few weeks at their institute. So is that something that like maybe would be acceptable to expand other provinces or? Yeah, possible. I mean, in, in British Columbia, really. Um the unique thing about BC is um, the emergency vehicle operations policy is different, or at least it was uh, 10 to 15 years ago, um, uh, than it is in the rest of Canada as, as far as what they teach um, at, at uh, Depot in Regina. So there is that portion of it. And then um, different resources available mm-hmm. in BC just because of the capacity that the RCMP has especially in the lower mainland. And uh, like I said, it's pretty much big city policing that we don't do most of the rest of Canada. So, Yeah, it's almost, and that kind of speaks to why I'm saying, like, I don't know if a national standard would fit. Uh, yeah. Everybody's got different budgets. Everybody's got a different amount of money, different populations. So um, one of the things, too, that, uh, speaking of money, came out of the, your recommendations were the equipment. So. I didn't realize that there's still vehicles without a computer in them, police cars without a computer. Yep. Uh, yep. So that was kind of surprising. But you were talking about just like in general, better technology. So GPS of vehicles or people, um, computers in cars. So do you want to maybe comment on some of that? Yeah, no, uh, you know, I, I don't know if we were uh, unclear on this, but uh, maybe it's because we lived through the Mass Casualty Commission. But when we're talking about vehicles without computers, obviously, we're talking about the uh, plainclothes, unmarked, detective-type mm, okay. uh, surveillance cars or uh, a dog handler uh, not having the full complement in there because there just isn't enough room with the, you know, the kennels, the cage, and such in the back. Or, um, you know, the tactical armored vehicle that the emergency response team is using. But So in addition to... Um, uh, making sure that all vehicles have the capacity to be outfitted um, tactically. Obviously, you don't necessarily want your surveillance vehicles with yeah. a laptop <laughs> in them uh, or a big GPS puck on the roof. Um, but in beyond that is um, embracing modern technology. And, you know, um, the RCMP is about to roll out body-worn cameras. So modern technology and body-worn cameras is the capacity to have uh, uh, GPS on there, so you're you can actually be in the command um, center with a screen up, and you can see from the GPS on the body worn cameras where all your members are. Mm-hmm. And as a commander, incident commander, you can actually turn on each individual body worn camera remotely to see what that member is seeing. So. There is that capacity as we roll out body-worn cameras. Don't know if it's going to be to that extent, but also there's like the ATAC system, uh, GPS-enabled ability to put into phones or radios to do something similar. So again, you're back in that. You got to think from a command perspective. 
I want to deploy my resources. I kind of want to know where 2 Bravo 15 is and 3 Bravo 11, right? So I can see them on the screen as they're moving in mm-hmm. here to the other place. Because what we saw in the Mass Casualty Commission was there were three members coming in in an IR formation to clear a certain area. But then there were also members who were actually trying to come out. So they wanted, yeah. Oh, okay. You're going to get a blue on blue. Yeah. So no, and, and it was so like I've seen uh, pictures and, of, of it, like it is black as black could be out there yeah. uh, that night. So do you actually uh, know that that rustling in the woods is the bad guy or is it whatever? And do you want to yell at them to give away your position knowing the bad guy's still out there? So it's really about embracing that technology so mm-hmm. that the commander can really deploy and tell everybody where everybody is. I think uh, as a frontline guy right now, uh, I would, um, the first thought that came to my mind was the commander's just going to be, you know, watching all the little pawns and moving around the board Mm. and just being like, you take five steps this way and you look this way and you, it's just going to, hopefully it doesn't turn into a giant micromanaging session. (laughs) That's kind of my fear, but that's up to the training and the commanders. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, obviously, a lot. I think I hope a lot of good is going to come out of these recommendations that the Mass Casualty, because uh, you know, from what I know, unless you followed along, um, um, those three initial IR members going in, and then subsequently the Earth team coming in to try and get them out, uh, like they were walking into what's described as kind of an active war zone, mm-hmm. and and mainly because the perpetrator had a garage that was filled with just thousands of rounds of ammunition. Mm -hmm. Um, And then obviously he set fire to that. So as these members are going in trying to search, they're hearing rounds go off. And it's so black. You don't know if someone's actually actively shooting or if it's right. So, so that was the real consist. Nobody knew, uh, you know, what's actually uh, going on and how do you make sure your members are safe? Mm -hmm. So one of the last things I was going to try to get to on the casualty commission side of things was you talk a lot about the supports for members and families. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that stuff, I guess, from the way I read it, a lot of that was downloaded onto uh, the service or the NPF to kind of pick up the pieces afterward. So was the recommendation that the government starts some sort of program and picks up where that is? Or are you looking to just have more funding on your side to deal with that? Well, you know, I think, yes, uh, a lot of it was downloaded to the NPF, but I think we have to, and and I I kick myself because in hindsight, we could have done so much better. Uh, That being said, you know, April 2020, we had been really in existence for four months, um, Mm -hmm. fully fledged. So um, didn't necessarily have the, the resources to be able to, to to mitigate or put on the ground there, but uh, thinking back, there are ways I could have uh, we could have done better. Um, but I think what 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 came here was um, the family liaison officers. There were some weaknesses identified in that program through the RCMP. You know, uh, normally next of kin notifications guidance through the criminal process, the investigations and such, and updates for victims and families. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, they assigned one, sometimes two in total oh. for all 22 families. And that's just uh, a massive burden, especially when there's actually no real training that mm-hmm. we give to our members about um, uh, trauma-informed approach and discussions and conversations. So, Let's figure out how we can do that better because we can definitely do uh, better on the family liaison side. And then I think internally from the RCMP side, um, I think the CEO of the day did okay after the fact, realizing that, you know, here's 100, 150 members that were involved in A, the initial response to. Uh, really ugly, terrible crime scenes, and then following up at the 13, 14, 15 different crime scenes over the months-long investigation. So I think she did okay requesting resources coming in from other provinces 
to complement those members being able to be away from work for a month, mm-hmm. two weeks, whatever, to decompress, get care and stuff. However, there were some hurdles in actually getting approval for that care for those members, uh, mainly because we don't really have any kind of formalized process for that. And I don't think anybody expected something this big uh, to happen. So, so it's really about let's, let's rethink how we talk to members and families um, after critical incidents so that we can implement some best practices yeah. about a taking care of the families, make sure they're up to date and all, and, and, and in a respectful and, and professional manner. But two, realize that this has an impact on just not only the 911 operator, but, you know, the member driving to, attending, and follow up afterwards. And, and how do we make sure that, that, that we take care of them as well? Yeah, well, and you think for every member, there could be a spouse, there's kids, like yeah. a whole bunch of other people that might need some help uh, out of this whole event. Um, so... Do you foresee that being maybe one of the easier pieces to kind of pick up on? I would imagine that, especially in today's climate, I feel like that should be almost not a quick fix, but like a, a maybe a bit of an easier fix, like for people to start going down that road, providing those kind of services. I, I hope so. You know, and, uh, you know, the RCMP has done some good things in the uh, mental health world and breaking down the barriers and stigma. Uh, but, you know, we also have to recognize that in Nova Scotia, for example, or even New Brunswick or neighboring uh, PEI, um, it's all smaller communities. Mm-hmm. So the members from Bible Hill that responded here, right, they're known to the community members. People know where they live. So we have to sit back and say, okay, if there's a massive impact, wherever it might be, right, do we need to do an assessment of perhaps moving that member and their family out of the community mm-hmm. so that they can get some this and that and whatever um, because otherwise you know you might have Fred at the grocery store calling Mary the member just you know names and reliving it and all that great stuff so um, yeah it's just a, a global perspective knowing some of the unique challenges that the RCMP members face do you know where uh, like I mean there's a lot of members involved in this but do you know where some of them are now like are, are, is everybody still just working in their units where they were or have a bunch of them been moved or maybe even quit the, uh, the service altogether uh i know a, a few of them have retired uh, you know some of the incident commanders and some of the more senior folk uh even a couple of the junior ones did uh did retire mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them have chosen to stay in nova scotia because they just love nova scotia and nova scotians um some have moved on to different units like or transferred out to new brunswick different places across the country uh but the majority of them are actually still there mm-hmm. um and 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 working in different communities okay um maybe you want, we'll move on to the recruiting side of things Sure. Yeah. So, uh, one of the things that um, we were going to get to here was uh, the changes that have come to recruiting experienced officers. So, can you talk a bit about the? Uh, I guess there was a new agreement or a letter of understanding. This is maybe the proper terminology. Yeah, and and honestly, this goes back to um, our first collective agreement that we negotiated uh, back August uh, two thousand twenty one. Um, in the end, post-ratification of that agreement, um, experienced police officers were continued to be coming into the RCMP, but we saw that, oh, we forgot about that sort of kind of thing because they were coming to us and saying, hey, I've got 10 years with, uh, I don't know, uh, Regina, and I just passed over to the RCMP, but for my holidays, they're treating me like I've only got one year of service. Mm. So that's a disincentive, obviously, for someone to come over as an experienced police officer. You want to recognize their seniority. Um, so we brought it to the commissioner, we brought it to Treasury Board of Canada. Both of them were like, oh, yeah, um, duh. So mm-hmm. we worked through it and ultimately came to uh, a modification of the collective agreement, this MOA for experienced police officers. So now 
that same 10-year member can walk into the RCMP and have 10 years of service for their holidays, uh, which is, I think, a greater incentive for mm-hmm. attracting experienced police officers. For experienced officers, does the pay transfer over as well based on your years? Uh, yes and no. So you, you, you come in as a first-class constable. There's no, uh, you know, uh, like most, you know, you start as a fourth or fifth-class constable and work your way up. So you do come in as a first-class constable. Uh, what would be a different police services have it differently, whether it's a 369 or a 4812 uh, uh, retention pay or service pay mm-hmm. or uh, something. That doesn't come over um, with you. So if you came from... Um, the OPP, for example, and you're at the 6% service level, uh, you're only coming in as a first-class constable. Okay. And then you would have to, you work into our own retention salary bonus, uh, which starts from zero. Okay. And um, I know a lot of people have uh, kind of talked about this too, is when you apply as an experienced officer, when you're going through the process, are you given your detachment or your, your posting ahead of time and then you can kind of make a decision like, I'm going to see this through and go through all the training and switch over so I know where I'm going, where I'm moving the family? Or yeah. does that come way later and you're kind of just hoping for the best? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> so um, so uh, yes, uh, I would encourage anyone who's considering it to obviously reach out. Um, Postings and deployments, obviously, we can't negotiate them. They're residual management rights. How the RCMP chooses to deploy its resources is, is, is their purview. Uh, but I do know that the RCMP is open to saying, um, hey, I'm a member of, uh, I don't know, uh, the Alberta Sheriffs. For example, my family lives in Calgary. Uh, my wife has a really good job there. My kids are in school. I don't necessarily want to move to Fort Vermillion. And then the RCMP is open to sitting down and discussing a pre-posting agreement to, I don't know, maybe Airdrie or High River or Okotoks. Yeah, okay. And, and so that so that they don't disrupt that family unit. Um, is that going to happen or be good for everybody? Uh, I don't know. Mm. So, But uh, they're open for the discussion. And, and if someone's thinking about it, yeah, ask the question and see where it goes. All right. Um, and maybe we'll kind of move on here just to uh, bail reform. Oh, yeah. Because I'm very curious about this. Unless, yeah. uh, did you have anything else? Did we miss anything else on even the mass casualty stuff that we want to make sure we get to? Uh, no, you know, I mean, mass casualty, really, it, a lot of our recommendations come down to money and being serious about mm-hmm. policing um, in the province, right? Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just that big topic that nobody ever wants to talk about is, uh, like I said earlier, you know, if you want to, a lot of the witnesses, it's interesting. A lot of the experts internationally that came into a lot of the panels, um, bluntly said there will be another mass casualty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so prepare for it. Um, so yeah. And hence why we're sitting back and saying, you know, in order to prepare for this stuff, here's some of the things that we see. Um, and, and. It's not just Nova Scotia. Like the next one might be in Saskatchewan. We saw the James Smith Cree First Nation. Yes, uh, you know, uh, stabbing challenges there. So, so how do we globally as Canadians uh, look at preparing ourselves for what might happen next? Yeah. Um, well, moving on to I guess maybe bail reform kind of fits into that. It does. Uh, so, do you want to talk about maybe the the? We'll start with lobbying and how how did this kind of come up where are we at and um what is bail reform like how do you even get this process started well it's already started and then you know we had a, I had a meeting last week with um um an mp uh conservative justice critic or chair of the justice committee meeting i've been invited to a meeting this week with uh minister of public safety kind of a round table to talk about ideas around bail reform um, and again, uh, I think a lot of people are, um, pointing the finger at the feds, mm. but also ignoring their provincial responsibilities. Um, you know, so it is a 
whole of government, provinces and feds that actually need to be on board for everything. So, you know, what can the feds do? Um, uh, and some of the things that we've spoken about already is uh, let's pick the low hanging fruit and work in a stepped capacity, you know? Um, so um, reverse onus. Mm-hmm. Okay. So firearms offense. Now it's a reverse onus for you to get bail. Yeah. Right. Just that's an easy one. Um, uh, you know, different things about um, um, the James Smith Cree First Nation, for example, the offender there was on statutory release mm-hmm. and had his statutory release revoked and there was a warrant out. So how do we do better? Uh, is statutory release still something that Canadians want, you know, finish two thirds of your federal sentence and you're at the door, no matter how bad you were in prison. Um, okay. Let's look at that. That's, that's low hanging fruit. Um, what, and sorry, I think just on stat release too, yeah. uh, there's no charge, right? And was that not part of the discussion? It was like, well, how come there's no new charge if you're breaching that part of it? So, yeah, you just go back and finish the, what was left of your sentence, right? So yeah. nothing, nothing new. I mean, unless you commit a new offense, uh, mm-hmm. then, then I'm thing. Uh, you know, the other low hanging fruit, I think that we were, we were bandying about was, um, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So 25 years before you can apply for parole or 14 years before you can apply for parole. Are those numbers still relevant today? Right. They came in, you know, in the early eighties, late seventies, the previous Trudeau, um, life expectancies doubled or gone up considerably since then. So a life sentence is 25 years for parole, actually still something that Canadians still uh, appreciate. Mm-hmm. Or is it a simple amendment to make that 40, right? Or 35. Yeah. Um, which, you know, they, these are like low hanging fruit things. And we, we saw that one with the, uh, the Justin Bork case, um, if you remember Moncton, 2014, he killed three of ours, injured two more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the judge of the day um, uh, stacked his life sentences, so he wasn't eligible to apply for parole for 75 years. Yeah. And since then, um, that law has been struck down, so you can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And he has now applied to the um, uh, provincial court of appeal in New Brunswick to have his sentence modified so he can apply for parole in 25 years. I doubt he'll ever get parole, but just the fact that he can apply for it or could apply for it is probably offensive. Um, so, yeah, and you know, especially when it comes to, to like murder charges and the people doing uh, 25 years, I wonder where they kind of get their. Uh, you know, the lawmakers get their thought process from because I'm thinking on one hand, if I'm the family, I go, well, my loved one is gone forever. You could be back out in 25-ish years, you know, depending on a host of factors, but you get to go back and have some sort of life, some version of it after you're out. So kind of like you're saying, you know, people live longer now, maybe 25, maybe we need to look at changing that number. Never know. Maybe they'll just decrease it. Maybe they'll put it to ten. Like who knows nowadays? Yeah. But um, I I just kind of wonder. Like, yeah, how come? Why is twenty five? You know, this number. Where did that come from? What's the history behind that? And then why can't someone do seventy five years? And I I read the thing there. Um, was that the judge was saying like it, it didn't leave the door open for rehabilitation? But again, it's like you know, at some point you decide to take somebody's life and they're gone forever. So yep. what's a, a reasonable time frame in the society's mind, I guess? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, obviously the, like the 25 and the 14, from my understanding, uh, came in when they abolished the death penalty. And at the time, that was what was deemed to be an appropriate sentence without being able to apply for parole. But, you know, times change, right? And, yeah. and, and people evolve. Um, you know, some of the other discussions we had were, uh, and I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a, uh, uh, the province of BC did a report, it's called a rapid, rapid investigation into, uh, violent stranger attacks. So 
um, I can, we can send, I can send you the link. Yeah. Uh, but within that, what they found, they did their study um, throughout the period of COVID. And what they found was that judges were um, not ordering, or sorry, Crown Council and judges were not ordering pretrial custodial sentences. So you're not remanded because we don't want you to get COVID mm-hmm. uh, in a fully packed institution. Um, so they were sending them back out of the community with more stringent conditions. And then once vaccines and mandates and all that stuff were listed, the trend continued. So the argument that we don't have enough jail cells, especially for pretrial sentence cust- uh, sentences or custody, um, is not there, at least in British Columbia. Um, so changing the mindset of uh, crowns and judges um, that they do have openings mm-hmm. in uh, provincial correctional institutions for people to go to while they await trial, um, and they should be perhaps in those more serious cases, uh, be sending people for pretrial custody. Um, so that that was interesting, and you know we that's why I say it's not just a federal thing, right? Yeah. That the provincial court judges and the provinces actually kind of need to be on board. And then there's Jordan, obviously, you know mm-hmm. uh, that whole uh, challenge of getting cases to trial in the eighteen thirty months. Um, and does that mean? more crown prosecutors, better administration, more judges. I have no idea, but you know, part of the reason that you see so many plea deals now is because we need to expedite this off our plate. So you plead guilty to X and we'll get rid of Y and Z. Thank you very much. Case closed. Off she goes. Um, so, or or things are thrown out altogether and I am like serious crimes. (laughs) Yeah. We're getting serious ag assaults and things are getting just tossed. Uh, murder's been tossed now. Yeah, yeah. because of the hasn't gotten to trial in time, which is it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I mean, uh, I think it, there there's a balancing act here um, between the rights of the accused <clears throat> and the rights of the community, and which one has greater weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, it, yeah, I think any cop will tell you that over the last 20, 25 years, more weight has been given to the rights of the accused and the rights of the community has been forgotten. Mm-hmm. So now it's really good to see that um, whether it be the premiers, the federal government or whatever, are starting to look at uh, the rights of the community and how they've been uh, disregarded and can make it right. Right. And uh all keeping in mind that those accused, they still have rights. Yeah. Yeah, but getting back to the original victim of the crime and, you know, yep. who we're here to protect. So, yep. um, yeah, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap it there. We're just shy of an hour, so that went quick. Um, no, I appreciate you taking the time to jump on here for a third time. I'm going to start uh, having to put a seat in here with your name on it. So I'll have to get you in here one day. <laughs> When do I get my uh, frequent flyer card? Yeah. 